Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show is rising against a privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom is precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am your brother, Vimir Dis Ogaya. And this is a Class War Battlefield podcast episode. Don't forget... You can now uh, donate to Class War Battlefield Podcast. Help me keep this thing moving. CWB, as in boy, podcast. That'll get you either PayPal or Cash App. Obviously, with Cash App, the dollar sign goes before the CWB podcast. With uh, PayPal, it's just CWB podcast 5 10 20 50 how many how, how much you can do it would really be helpful i am trying to get to the point where i'm doing three plus thousand dollars every month i hope sometime in the next six months to start putting out um between six and eight of these a month as as long as those goals are met Let's, let me get on with the show, though. I have a question. Obviously, I know that Marx wrote the book Das Kapital, or Capital. I haven't read it all the way through. I've skimmed it. I've listened to portions of it. I've read portions of it also. 
Don't know why I just didn't say that part, but I did. And, um, it seems to be heavily focused on the economic side of the politics. Even though Marx himself uses the phrase political economy several times. And maybe ultimately, because I haven't really read much of Volume 2 and Volume 3 of Capital, um, but maybe ultimately he, he touches on this question and I just didn't realize it. Um, the social structure that Marx is given credit for popularizing the bourgeoisie, you know, the lower working classes, things like that, um, forms kind of the foundation of his societal um, architecture. The problem with that, to me anyway, is that the political participation of the average citizen whether bourgeoisie or not, doesn't answer the question that is really innate in the use of the phrase political economy. There's two questions that are innate um, in the phrase political economy when you use it appropriately. The first question Marx undoubtedly answered that question is, how does this uh, system manifest itself through economy, through economic means, through economic um, exchanging of money? You know, even economic institutions can it is described at some length by people writing, um, basically on behalf of Marx. You know, they're Marxian and Marxists, years later after his death. How is capitalism manifested as institutions, as uh, human exchanges? That is important, and that has been discussed a lot. So hasn't many themes that touch on the second question, which have which hasn't really um, been answered. That question is much like the first. How does capitalism, the system, create um, or manifest itself in politics? How does it create the political institution of government? Now again, it's possible that Marx went over you know, some of this and I just didn't catch it. Um, but it is a question that is not traditionally um, handled well. 
Even Marx had a problem with tackling uh, the issue of imperialism, even though he does mention it towards the end of the book. Um, the issue of imperialism forming the basis for capitalism. The same thing with enslavement. What does a government look like under the economic ordering, the systemic economic ordering, and thus the societal ordering, because you can't have economy without politics, the societal or, um, ordering of capitalism? What does the government look like? I think, I think, if we are to be fair and listen to our brothers and sisters known as conservatives, they actually tell us in very few words what the political side of capitalism is supposed to look like. On the one hand, government, any regulating force within the society is supposed to be scaled back. Psychopaths and corporations are supposed to be allowed to run rampant. And some conservatives may literally say, and some libertarians will say, oh, well, you don't know that. Yeah, history, history has already proven this. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you're just, you're wrong. Um, we do know it. That's part of what caused the Great Depression and the New Deal to actually need to be done. What government does, does um, remain is only there to basically provide policing and maybe some courts. Maybe. And I mean, that's a heavy maybe. That's not a guarantee. And the reason I say that is because I was listening to Sam Cedar's program, Majority Report, and a guy called up, this was a couple of months ago now, and he literally was arguing that courts that um, were subjected to... Uh, public bribes, basically. I mean, you could pay a court that that they wouldn't be swayed by the money that they were receiving to, um, you know, find fault with the person who didn't pay them the most money. And so that's when I really started realizing, okay, these 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 guys are nuts. They're they're not even thinking logically. They're not. Outside of that, government really would have very little function. Very little. And uh, until it is capable of dumping the functions that it has, because, you know, most central governments do quite a bit, most of which you don't realize they do until they stop doing it, and they start, you know, selling it off to big corporations, and the price skyrockets, and you're like, I used to use this all the time. How did this happen? It's because of the free market. It's because of the free 
market. But until they're able to dump all of those things, their job is to deregulate the economy, to allow their economy to just run roughshod over society. Now, most people don't really want that. But you support people who really want that. The politics. The politics becomes, I would think, reliant on the individuals in the corporations who can bribe politicians. I mean, again, this isn't new, ladies and gentlemen. We did this already. This was the 1870s and 80s and 90s and 1900s and 1910s and 1920s. The only thing that stopped it from being the 1930s was the Great Depression. Hmm? But that's not it. The question that looms large is what really does the government look like under capitalism? Obviously, clearly, most of the politicians are wholesale operatives because they're, you know, owed, owned, should I say, um, by by the, the corporate interests, the capitalist interests, they then become an extension of those interests. But, again, that doesn't describe in detail the type of government and how it's running. Nor what is to be expected of the general people, psychologically, emotionally, what have you, who are witnessing their society transition to a more hyper-capitalist political model. I mean, I think when we take a look at how elections go in this country, you are seeing the political side, the political side of, um, um, of capitalism. And in fact, I remember, of course, when Donald Trump was elected, everybody started talking about idiocracy. Oh my God, this is idiocracy. This is idiocracy. Idiocracy, a movie that I've seen 20 minutes of, is a really good example of what corporations, I think, would like most people to be. And thus, capitalists would like most people to be like that. Just absolutely engaged with the, with the, with the culture to the point where you are in a stupor. And not a good one either. A quite bad one. I mean, you're basically walking hypnotized all the time. And because of that, you make decisions based on not only just what feels good, but what you think feels good. And <laughs> I've seen people make decisions based on what they thought felt good, and it never works out well. There probably should be a paper written on the political realities and, um, um, uh, communicated in that movie. Because there are some harsh truths in that movie. That stated, I want to. I have to go back to the original question, though. Politically, what does a government look like? I think we are seeing, from the standpoint of of of, of politics, 
um, that capitalism not only holds back politically your country, which then holds the country back socially, but it becomes obsessed with trying to convince people that it is not, I repeat, it is not doing that, even when you are seeing it for your own self. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Capitalism is is kind of funny. I mean, for all of the good that it can do, it is usually done at the hands of people who want to take advantage of the goodwill that it gains them to do some stuff that's typically not that good. So, mm. I think, truthfully, in order to answer this question, you would have to carry out the same type of um, kind of deep dive into the legislation that that is passed, as well as the legislative process, the election process, um, the candidate process at a state level, possibly even at a regional level, in order to really get a snapshot of what the political side of political economy of capitalism is. There's a book called When Corporations Ruled the World. It's, it's one of the books that I read like 13 years ago now, maybe 14, um, and it blew my mind. It blew my mind. It was it was written about the GATT agreement, I think it's the GATT agreement, and um, the agreements that were written and signed internationally back in the late, um, 1990, the late 1990s, I was about to say late 1999, late 1990s, which changed the not only dynamic of the economy within the United States, but ultimately changed the politics. There's another book that I discovered, thank you Rick Perlstein, by the way, Rick Perlstein is one of those people that when you read his books, don't forget to look through the back. And don't forget to pay attention to the books that he mentions within the text, because, man, he mentions some absolute brilliant books that most people have never heard of, but they need to read. One of those books, one of those books is called Dismantling America, and it is a, a early book written about not only deregulation, but ultimately um, austerity, but I don't... I don't believe they intended to speak that much about austerity. It is a great book. It's such a great book that, um, uh, I was about to say Norm Ornstein. <laughs> Sorry, not you, my man. Um, ooh, what is his name? What is his name? What is his name? Um, Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader blurbs the book, says it is worth the time, effort, and money um, and I think he's right. These are the type of books that you would have to dive into to really get a snapshot picture of the politic side of capitalism. Um, looking at the number of associations, uh, what is it, the book, um, 
the Republican noise machine, looking at the associations and how they influence politics, another key um, aspect of appreciating what the politic uh, side of political economy and capitalism is. Another book, The Power Game, by uh, Hedrick Smith, H-E-D-R-I-C-K, Smith. That actually was written, I believe, back in the late 80s about the, um, the actual structure of power in Washington. And that is to say nothing about, and I'm not going to be able to locate it right now. There's, a, there's another book, um, So Damn Much Money, which talks about how earmarks took over part of the legislative process. Uh, I mean, it, there are, the question, which I think a lot of people believe they have answered, has not been sufficiently answered. What, what is the role of the consumer in politics? What is expected of them in a capitalist society? Because in a capitalist society, you're a consumer or you're a commodity. Capitalism doesn't believe in citizenry unless you have a lot of money. That is when citizenry kicks into place. Because the citizen has power. And for, the capital, for capitalism, how it's been structured, the power is innate in the money. And so the more money you have, the more powerful you are. Therefore, the more you can exercise your citizen rights and your citizenship. It's so funny. Back in the 60s, when people were saying, I'm a citizen of the world. It was not meant to denigrate the idea of citizenship. Today, when wealthy people say, I'm a citizen of the world, it's meant to denigrate people's citizenship. You can't do what I do, but I go all around the world because I'm special. For capitalism, what is citizenship? I know, obviously, I know, obviously, back in the day, they used to talk about the national and internationalism, which is brilliant and makes sense in an um, archaic concept, you know, something that was true for centuries and then was blown up during imperialism. Absolutely true. But in the modern age, what is citizenship in a capitalist society? And why is citizenship? One of the, one of the most brilliant books that I tore through 10 years back, The Invention of Capitalism by Michael Perlman, he really introduced to me um, the girth of the capitalist story. In that book, you kind of get a snapshot of all these, all these segments of development that most people don't talk about, like one of my favorites, 
the um the health of um agriculture and specifically the diversity in agriculture what do i mean the amount of plants that one could grow simply for the enjoyment of growing the plant because it was it was good food most of the time it was good food most people weren't doing like major gardens with flowers unless they were wealthy the health of agriculture is wholly attached to the capacity to grow things that may not be able to be grown on mass but they could be grown in small batches because ultimately it makes the soil healthier. What Michael Perlman did in that book was he talked about, and blew my mind when he did, he talked about the idea that a number of long-time food staples that people had been growing for centuries were phased out because agricultural imperialists couldn't grow them en masse and thus said it's not worth the time. Some of these things took a little bit of extra um, work to, to, to grow, took some attention. I guess probably didn't take some attention before imperialism, but, you know, imperialism is hard on everything. Um, so they got rid of it. So they got rid of it. And some of these things were very nutritious. Not only um, were they nutritious in, in themselves, but what they provided to the, um, the soil. The nutrients were just stupendous. Now, from the standpoint of politics, that may not seem important. Until, obviously, until you get to the idea of class and subsistence and things like that. But from a political standpoint, did that impact politics? Well, I would say yes. Why? Because, clearly, while, the, while some of these things were um, decided by corporations, other times times corporations went to government and said we need you to ban this why because we need you to ban it say that it's causing this 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 and this and then government turned and said well we're capitalists and the capitalists are here asking us to do this so let's do it now look i acknowledge that's a little bit of a stretch <laughs> that's a little bit of a stretch but but that's why I'm asking the question. See, unlike Tucker Carlson, I'm not just asking questions. This is important. What does a political machine called government look like when it is capitalist? Because let's be honest, let's be, let's be honest and let's be clear. Every system that Europe has created, and they said it was economic, it was definitely political too. 
We don't think feudalism is an economic system. We think of it as a political economy. We think of it in terms of kings and queens and knights and nobility and the lower class. They were called serfs. And that's it. And that's it. The politics, because it was, you know, the king, was limited. But the same thing can be argued with Rome. There were oligarchs in Rome, which controlled a lot of things. And only when the the rabble, the people at the bottom of the society, started agitating and pushing politicians to do more, did um, the civility go out the window. And people started getting killed because they were becoming too um, willing to listen to the people. Granted, the people didn't always support them after they went out on a limb for them, which is always wonderful. Um, but it is what it is. The story is clear. The politics in Rome was hostile to changing the status quo. Now look, look, I'm not here saying that the Romans were capitalists. That's That would be crazy and stupid, the word, if I know correctly, didn't really come into existence until, what, the 1800s? So, I mean, it's impossible to say that they're capitalists, but there are some stunning similarities, including the hyper-competitiveness between the Romans and capitalism, including the, the, the inability to take care of the land as they scraped it and, and molded it for their benefit. I mean, it's... Again, just some similarities. Um, just some similarities. The question, though, still remains. What does politics look like in a capitalist system? And I think this is going to be the question for the decade. And I mean for the next, like, 12 years. So I probably should have said decade and a half. But either way, for like the next 12 years, why is it going to be the question? Because at the end of it all, whether you think the United States is heading towards a Republican-style oligarchic um, society, or you are a person who thinks that, you know, it's, it's... pretty bleak, we're probably going to go into authoritarianism and have kind of this corporate overlord thing, no matter what. Even if you are massively optimistic and you're like, 15 years from now we're going to be, you know, very progressive country, um, things are going to be just massively different. Well, unless we truthfully get to the bottom of the capitalist model for politics in a country and start to counter that whatever it is including if it's oligarchy included if it's you know light fascism whatever um, if we don't do that it ain't gonna matter because see 
we don't have the answer necessary to make real uh, the opposition that we should have to the um, uh, to the business of capitalism, including the political business of capitalism. I am going to make this short today. Questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. Um, I want to remind you all again, if you can please each month, 5, 10, 20, 50, whatever you can do, um, my email address, my email address, jeepers, sorry, my <laughs> my um, PayPal address, or my PayPal handle, Jeez, what is with this address thing? My PayPal handle is the same as my um, Cash App handle. The difference is Cash App, obviously, you have the dollar sign in front of it. So they're both C-W-B as in boy, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, C-W-B podcast for either one of them. Look, guys, commit, please, to, to donating between 5 and $20 every single month. Help me keep this thing going. Um, I really am finally, after a year and a half of basically trying to recover from the sickness that I went through in 2021, I'm starting to feel the heat again. I'm starting to feel the passion. I'm starting to feel the burn. Yeah. So, thank you guys in advance. I see you on the next one. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs. On the radio, talk shows, and the TV, you hear one thing again and again. Stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends